From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. You've heard the disturbing news stories. A child pushed onto the MAX train tracks. A man bites part of another man's ear off. An arsonist sets fire to the Korean church in downtown Portland, and so many more. At the heart of those stories is often mental illness and addiction issues. We often see those challenges in our homeless population and even in our schools where children have struggled during the pandemic. But Oregon ranks last in the nation, number 50, when it comes to access to treatment. Why? A big part of that reason is a behavioral health care staffing crisis. And that's what we're talking about in this episode of Straight Talk. We'll look at the problem, the causes, and possible solutions with my guest, the president and CEO of Central City Concern, Dr. Andy Mendenhall. Central City Concern serves thousands of people experiencing homelessness. Dr. Andy joined CCC in 2017 as Senior Medical Director for Substance Use Disorder Services, becoming Chief Medical Officer in 2018 and promoted to CEO last year. Also joining us, we're pleased to welcome Oregon's new Labor Commissioner, Christina Stevenson. Stevenson heads up Oregon's Bureau of Labor and Industries, Boley. She is a civil rights attorney, and as Boley Commissioner, she wants to make sure Oregon workers have access to their civil rights and Oregon businesses have access to the skilled workers they need. And rounding out our panel, Stacy Chamberlain, the Executive Director for Oregon AFSCME. The union represents 33,000 workers in every corner of Oregon. Chamberlain is a longtime union leader focused on helping workers find their voice and collective power to build the communities they want to live and work in. Welcome to my guests, Dr. Andy Mendenhall, Labor Commissioner Stevenson, and Stacy Chamberlain. Welcome to Straight Talk. It's so nice to have you all here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you Thanks for having us. And Dr. Andy, this is a pretty big deal to have this panel together, isn't it? It is so special to have Commissioner Stevenson here and representation by uh, Stacy as the director of AFSCME. And uh, Central City Concern as an employer providing services within the space. I, I really believe that with great partnership, we have the opportunity to solve this solution together. And that's what we're going to try to do. So let's define the problem. You know, just how bad is this staffing crisis from your point of view, Dr. Andy? So globally, we know that in the state of Oregon, the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission in September published a study stating that we were deficient 36,000 behavioral health care workers of a bunch of different roles looking at pre-pandemic numbers of supply and demand. At CCC, our experience is that we have over 100 vacancies right now of a staff of about 1,100, and more than 50 of those are roles that are specifically providing services in the behavioral health space. What that means for us and for the community are Folks that need access to those services don't have access, and that unfortunately affects hundreds, if not up to a thousand individuals in our region on a yearly basis. And from your point of view, Commissioner, from the Bowling point of view, define the crisis for us. Well, I mean, you heard 36,000, but what, what does that mean? I think it's evident in the terms of the outcomes that Dr. Mendenhall is talking about, but also it's evident in terms of the workforce themselves, you know, being, uh, being beleaguered by this crisis themselves. And so what we have heard for, I think, years now is workforce crisis, workforce crisis. And what it means is when you're driving down the street on Burnside, I think you see the evidence of this crisis. And I think you see it throughout the state, no matter what the community. And Stacy, from a worker's point of view, how would you describe it? 
Well, uh, I think Andy, you know, talked about it. Um, the staffing uh, vacancy rate that he has at Central City Concern is pretty standard from what we're seeing across the board um, in all industries. And what it what it does is we're not providing the services to the community and the workforce that is doing the work. This is mentally challenging work, and they're burnt out. They're putting in extra hours, a lot of overtime, mandatory overtime, just to get it done, and they're leaving the industry. And folks aren't coming in because they can't get ahead. They actually, a lot of folks, especially in Oregon and Portland uh, specifically, um, are, are getting behind uh, because they can't, the housing, and we'll get into that, but the squeeze is definitely on this workforce. And when we talk about behavioral health care workers, what roles, jobs, responsibilities are we talking about, Dr. Andy? So there's a, there's a breadth of fields here. This is everything from folks that serve in peer support services all the way to folks that have master's degrees and are licensed clinicians uh, providing social work, providing care coordination, counseling, case management. I also want to highlight that we're deficient several thousand drug and alcohol counselors as well. So a lot of different roles, really important roles, and, and a variety of different educational backgrounds. And this crisis, I understand, is even more significant in communities of color and for people who could benefit from culturally specific services. Can you talk a little bit about that, Stacey? Um, absolutely. Um, this is where we're seeing a huge deficiency. And when we're talking about this, we're talking about folks that speak the same language, right, or come from uh, the same culture, because we know we have better outcomes and right now when we're looking at the Latinx community, uh, we have 160 folks that we're talking about that are able and certified to deal with this type of work. 160 statewide, right? Not that, that is, mm -hmm. Yeah, not even close. So Commissioner, from your point of view with the Bureau of Labor and Industries, what are some of the causes? We've touched on a little bit, but what do you think the root causes of this shortage are? I, well, I think we, we've seen just a disinvestment for, for decades in this part of the system, but I think also thinking through the, the whole pipeline of how we get workers ready to, to work in this workforce, you know, if we had stronger partnerships at the K-12 level and getting people into apprenticeship programs, like we'll talk a little bit more, we could have a more highly trained workforce by this time. Well, let's talk about that pipeline problem. How do we get more people to want to go into this field? Andy and Stacy, weigh in on this. So a couple of things. I mean, first, Laurel, we know that for many individuals, the value proposition of, of spending tens of thousands of dollars to go to school and then have a job where folks are barely getting ahead is uh, simply not playing out. So at the front end, folks who might have an interest in, help, in being in the helping industry are making different choices. So I, I think that the solutions we'll talk about in a little bit, but, but it really has to do with how do we make these roles uh, desirable? How do we make, you know, not just living wage, but how do we make these family wage positions uh, honor the professions that these roles uh, serve and then create an opportunity for folks to progress along the way as they gain skills and gain education. Can you expand on that, Stacey? I mean, you touched on this. Like, why don't people want to go into this field? <clears throat> um, because they're putting it on the line, right? If they 
um, are interested. What ends up happening right now under the current system is they go to school, uh, assuming they make it through the program, um, then they have to go find a job and they have all this student debt to pay. And for a lot of our folks, they're making $40,000 a year. And if they're in Portland, right, so that's about $3,500 a month. And they're paying for a one bedroom apartment in Portland, it's like over $1,500, right? So, and that's assuming they don't have a kid. So as you can see, they're not even, they're, they're going in debt every month. So there's no incentive for folks that are really compelled to do this work and want to do this work because they can't even get a job at the end that's going to be able to live a life frankly. And so we need to figure out how we invest in these workers uh, because these are jobs our community needs. And so the onus needs to not be on the individual, that we as a community need to invest in apprenticeship programs, which we're going to talk about, because we need to invest in that person being successful, coming out of a program, able to work and do this these uh, the counseling that we need to happen. So um, I think that's a huge thing. I also think the other thing is is that there needs to be a huge market adjustment. A lot of uh, uh, the commissioner spoke about the disinvestment, and that means more money needs to be put into this system in order to pay and compensate these individuals for the work that they're doing. It is really heavy work, and uh, folks aren't going to go into a system that is going to compensate them for of that they're doing. And it's such important, critical work. Absolutely. Before we get to solutions, Dr. Andy, what kind of ripple effect is this having? Can you give us some concrete examples of what impacts this shortage is having? Absolutely. I mean, um, at one end, it's, it's directly impacting the livability of our communities, both locally and across the state. If folks, when they have that desire to engage in treatment, have to go on a two or three week or month wait list for service, it's having a negative impact so profoundly on those individuals who are expressing a need and a desire for those services. As a result, we have complications associated with untreated substance use disorder, complications, and, and in the intro, you highlighted a couple of those really egregious complications. Well, those ongoing challenges and traumas that are both um, uh, folks struggle in the community with, right, but are also then sometimes inflicted upon others, are part of the burden that a lack of access continues to perpetuate. Um, tragically as well, when um, agencies that are seeking to provide these services um, don't have the staff, it has a real profound impact on the bottom line and, and that imbalance between supply and demand will continue to persist until we close this gap. So let's dig into some of these short-term solutions. Commissioner, let's, let's talk about apprenticeships and the kinds of things you think could help. I mean, at Bully, that's where we're laser focused, is making sure that we can provide the skilled workforce we need in Oregon, including in behavioral health. So the apprenticeship model, it's just such a beautiful model, right? You earn while you learn. You have both the employer and the, the workers working together um, to come together uh, to develop a curriculum that is actually based on the skills needed. So uh, folks, we, we see this as a really effective way to diversify the workforce and to professionalize and support the workforce growth in uh, for the workers themselves to, to grow their skills. So why is this better, Stacey, than say, you know, traditional college internship? So uh, uh, college interns pay you know, a stipend, right? And it's a little bit of money. And what ends up happening is even if you're going through college and you're going into an internship program, 
life happens, right? And a lot of folks don't finish. And so that individual is actually further behind with student debt than they otherwise would have been. And so folks aren't making those choices anymore. With an apprenticeship program, we're investing in that worker to be successful. We're trying to make sure that barriers uh, to education, barriers for getting through the program are removed. So for an example, we actually started uh, a trust, United We Heal, and we're working with Central City Concern on that as well. I'm really proud of that. Um, but one of the apprentices that was going through the program was going to have to drop out um, because life happened. And she was going to have to move and needed to get an apartment in emergency uh, situation. And we were able to provide emergency funds for her um, that allowed her to move and stay in the program. And if we didn't have that apprenticeship model where you're living and earning, uh, this is a single mom, right? She would have had a dropout. We would have been further behind and not fulfilling that spot. And now here she is almost ready to graduate the apprenticeship program. And that's, that's good for us, right? That's a spot we need and it's good for her because she didn't have to take all that burden on, all that risk on when you have a family. And if you're a single parent, that's not usually a risk you're willing to Do you take. see that helping ease this crisis? I absolutely do. I'm really excited about the model of an apprenticeship program because it has the opportunity to scale to the level quickly and easily to, the need, to meet the needs of both regions and the state more broadly. These are professional roles and it takes years to develop the skills and so the opportunity to create sustainability in that process of becoming a behavioral health professional for, for us at Central City Concern and, and for me as a physician is really exciting to consider. We have a graphic we can put up too to show some of the other short-term solutions. Commissioner, as I ask you, do you see maybe some statewide investments that could help with this with the legislature? Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to put a finer point on it, so we've heard of workforce shortages, for example, in firefighting. Legislature acted and got an apprenticeship approved for firefighting in Jackson County. So a rural community that really needed uh, extra support in getting their firefighters. Since that was approved, they have uh, actually doubled the amount of firefighters. So this was a very quick turnaround. And so we see that this model really works, you know, so we should absolutely be applying it to other industries. So that was successful. Stacy. I don't know if this is different from the apprenticeship you're talking about, the drug and alcohol counseling program you started. Is that something different? How's that working? It's working really well. We just started it, I think, over a year and a half ago, time flies. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's a great approach, right? Because uh, it's a shared board with union representatives and employers and looking at investing in the workforce and solving uh, solving problems, right? Um, we're really excited that we got some congressional funding, uh, thanks uh, Congresswoman Bonamici, um, you know, to really work on the apprenticeship programs specifically related to uh, these counseling positions. And so these worked in the trades. Uh, it's a model that we know works. And so I'm really excited that, you know, others or employers are really digging in and looking at this as a, as a real solution to a problem that's been ongoing for a long time. Dr. Andy, what about helping people with lived experience become certified helpers? Is that something that could work? Laurel, it's a great question. And in fact, many people with lived experience um, have a strong desire to give back and becoming a behavioral health professional is part of that give back. Some of the challenges uh, for folks is they may have distant prior criminal records um, and or they may have barriers 
barriers to receiving education funding um, because of, of past records, if you will. So there are certainly opportunities for advancing expungement, finding other ways to create funding pathways, scholarships, stipends and tuition reimbursement for folks that can really harness that desire for folks to be engaged and give back to the community. And before we go to break, I want to touch on something else that was in the, the graphic that we had up there that might help and, and help me understand this licensing parity, ensuring there's licensing parity. Who, who wants to talk about that? Licensing parity? I, I mean, I would defer to... to I, I'm happy to take it. Uh, briefly, one of the challenges right now in Oregon is that um, we have a pretty high bar for folks who um, could fill these roles immediately uh, with respect to uh, state certification, and we really need to have uh, the ability for folks to come in from other states and immediately be able to go to work. So that reciprocity on licensure is really, uh, I think, a very simple aiming point, and uh, changes uh, within uh, the OHA in terms of policy uh, could really facilitate expedited um, uh, boosting of the workforce. Well, sounds like a lot of great ideas here. We're going to continue our conversation with some possible long-term solutions. We're back right after the break. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking about a drastic shortage of behavioral health care workers in Oregon. According to an OHSU PSU School of Public Health study, Oregon has an estimated shortage of 35,000 behavioral health care workers. And that shortage is having a ripple effect across the state. How do we fill that gap? Welcome once again to my guest, the CEO of Central City Concern, Dr. Andy Mendenhall, the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries Commissioner, Christina Stevenson, and the Executive Director of Oregon AFSCME, Stacy Chamberlain. The union represents thousands of Oregon behavioral health care workers. Thanks again for being here to try to talk about solutions. So we don't have a lot of time left, but let's come up with some solutions here. Bottom line, Dr. Andy, how do we get more people to want to become behavioral health care workers? We make the process easier. We provide support along the way in terms of apprenticeship opportunities. We provide scholarships. We provide child care. We provide paid internship opportunities. And we really look as well to make sure that there is a sustainable wage and the opportunity for professional progression over the course of someone's career. And Stacey, you talked about in the first segment how rent burdened people yes. are. What do we do about housing? Um, well, luckily, uh, Governor Kotek, this is a priority for her, and this is a huge, uh, she plans on making a huge investment in affordable housing, which will impact all uh, this in a, in a huge way. And so we're really looking forward to seeing that. But it has a huge impact. I mean, this is a barrier that is uh, keeping folks from living in Portland and being able to do this work that they love. And what about affordable childcare? How important is that to, to your workers? I mean, these are all barriers to employment, right? And so when you are barely surviving underneath your wage, um, these are these are things that you have to have to go to, to, go to work, right, is, is affordable childcare. We're having a, a childcare crisis in the state too, right? And and affordable childcare is something that is not as accessible uh, as we'd like it to be. So, you know, I think looking at options where the employer is investing or the state's investing in childcare to allow and make sure that uh, this is no longer a barrier to workers showing up. And Commissioner, from the state's point of view, what can the state do? What has the state already done? Well, your viewers may be familiar with Future Ready Oregon, which was a one-time investment from the legislature, and Boley received $20 million, about $18.9 million of that to create 
pre-apprenticeship programs and apprenticeship programs, including, uh, I believe, United We Heal was uh, a recipient of some of that, some of those dollars. But in addition to developing the curriculum themselves, a, a crucial part of these is uh, funding the childcare subsidies, the housing subsidies, the wraparound services that make it so that people can actually make it through the apprenticeship programs that our investments make it all the way through. Dr. Anna, we've had uh, legislators on this show, including Representative Nose, talking about the $1 billion package the legislature passed over a couple of sessions for behavioral health care. Why isn't it working? Why are we seeing this crisis still? A big part of it, Laurel, has to do exactly with the deficiency in workforce. You can have a ton of funds set at the front end, but if they're not folks that are skilled, that are ready and able to deliver the service, then the money is literally going to sit and folks are going to wait for service to be able to be delivered. Do you want to weigh in on that, Stacey? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that obviously we love any money that's coming to invest in behavioral health, but it's not enough and it's not ongoing. And so one of the big things to stabilize a workforce is, is to pay them a living wage. And uh, this is an ongoing money. And so that's one of the big problems that we're seeing is where to invest it. The apprenticeship program is a great option, but we can't scale up uh, fast enough right now to see those results. Well, bottom line is they need to be paid more money. Absolutely. So how do we accomplish that? Anybody want to take that on? We're really grateful and, and I want to honor uh, Representative Dexter and Representative Nose for um, supporting um, and, and ultimately this led to the passage of House Bill uh, 5025, which has provided additional funds to the Oregon Health Authority to make permanent uh, rate increases, and, and by rate, I mean the amount that is paid to provide a behavioral health service. Um, so we're excited to see that. That has ultimately a, a pass-through effect that will empower employers to be able to offer um, higher wages. However, I think that, that part of the challenge is that, that the supply-demand mismatch between the number of folks that we need to have in the workforce to deliver service and the number of folks that are available is going to require really aggressive investment. And I personally believe that an apprenticeship program offers the opportunity to scale as quickly as Oregonians need. Is that something the legislature would pass? When we, talk, we keep talking about the apprenticeship program, does that have to come from the legislature? We actually have an apprenticeship program right now uh, with the United We Heal program for a number of the QMHA um, and for bringing on the counselors. Um, so we can do this and we're working with the state and Boley obviously on that. Um, but like I said, that's not going to solve it today, right? Because they have to go through the program. We have just a short time left. I want to give you each about 45 seconds to kind of send this home, tie a bow on it. Let's start with the commissioner. You know, we've seen this investment be incredibly effective, like I talked about with the firefighters in Jackson County. So let's scale this. This model works and it can work for behavioral health. And you'll see, uh, I think we all want to see our streets, our communities be more livable. We want the workers who are doing this work to have more livable conditions as well. So this is kind of a win-win for everybody. And Stacy, um, we got, we have to stabilize that workforce. Um, you know the the folks that are doing this work right now. Um, 
are burnt out, their mental health is at risk. Um, they're working a ton of overtime, and so we need to make sure that they are being compensated at a living wage. The apprenticeship programs will help us level up. And uh, again, working with employers like Central City Concern, you know, who's coming to the table with their workforce, with their union, and looking to solve these problems by having discussions and being bold and innovative. So I just want to thank uh, Andy and other employers. So we need to have that. more conversations Absolutely. like this, it sounds like. Absolutely. About a, a minute left, Dr. Andy, to wrap things up here. Thank you so much for the acknowledgement and most importantly, the partnership. I am super hopeful that we can solve this. We can solve this regionally and across the state. There are folks in the pipeline that want to do this work. How can we make that possible for, for those folks to say yes? And I, I really believe that that's possible. Uh, we have folks uh, in the educational uh, divisions. I look forward to seeing the opportunities for educators and educational institutions working closely uh, to, to support the um, apprenticeship programs and also you know, for the employer's role in ensuring that we are ready and capable of developing uh, these professionals and providing a sustainable future as they choose this career. And before we, we close it out, I can give you about 15 seconds, Stacy. Do you wanna send a message to, to the employees out there, the behavioral healthcare workers that are working so hard? Uh, I would just say thank you for doing all that you're doing. Um, obviously, uh, workers that have a union have a voice in what happens in their workplace and uh, has a voice in creating the solutions for a system that actually serves our community and uh, doesn't burn out the workers. So uh, sign up and join a union. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. As House Speaker Rayfield told me last week, your legislators are accessible. Reach out to them. If you support any of these ideas, it could make a big difference. Thank you again to my guests, and thank you for watching. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.